This is an ABC podcast. Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. I'm just holding on for their life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Save what for dream. You must ready. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hi, I'm Fred Hooper and this is Pacific Prepared. It's a show all about natural disasters, climate change and traditional knowledge and how those things are all connected. And you'll hear that through stories from right across the Pacific. Each week we work with local reporters. They're on the ground letting us know what's happening in this space and what people want to hear about. On today's show, why traditional methods of harvesting sea grapes in Fiji might have to change. When it's uh, getting hot, the numbers dies out. Mm. Yeah. And then it takes time to grow, to grow back again. Also, traditional knowledge in Papua New Guinea. One chief in PNG is worried that culture isn't being passed on like it should be. Just passed down by verbally, by a father to the son, uh, and then the son locks it up in the head, and then he passes it on to his, his image of it. That's how it came up to be. And we'll take a look back at the Samoan canoe used to help young people to understand the environment and traditional knowledge. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. We need to be prepared for the future. Helping you stay safe. We have built a seawall two times, but it did no good. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. For some people harvesting sea grapes in Fiji, this is sort of the standard day. Waking up at around 3.30 to 4am. Taking about an hour's boat ride. And then spending the next three to four hours diving in the ocean to collect about 10 kilos of namas, also known as sea grapes. They're small green balls, much like a bunch of grapes. Each grape might be about the size of a couple of pieces of rice. They've got a tough skin and they're very salty when you pop them in your mouth, as you can imagine. But the harvest of these grapes is changing. The routine might need to be different in the future. Fiji-based Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Josiah Nanunga has this story. The women fishers of Namoyamanda village in the province of Ra harvest nama or sea grapes and sell it in the local market in Fiji as a source of livelihood and income. Nama is commonly eaten raw in Fiji and serves as a significant source of nutrition. One of these women fishers in Namuimanda village is Sarah Balisasa, who has been harvesting nama or sea grapes for more than a decade and considers it the main source of income for her family. Balesasa notes several changes in recent years and claims that the issues they are facing are the result of the impact of climate change. Uh, my name is Sarah Balesasa and uh, I am uh, 38 years old and I came from Namoyamanda village in the province of Ofra. 
Uh, currently, I am um, a sea grapes uh, harvesters. Mm. Uh, it's over ten years now for my for her, for my harvesters, and uh, I'm uh, harvested for commercial purpose and uh, consumption as well. Mm. So, as I've mentioned before, I understand you've been part of the Women in uh, Fisheries Network. Eh? Uh, you've been part of uh, various trainings, especially uh, sustainable management uh, within, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the fishing zones uh, within your community. What are some of the, the lessons learned uh, over the past few trainings you've attended and uh, how do you apply it? Uh, or share the message to other women in your community, in the Mwemanda? Uh, thank you. Uh, I've been attending a lot of trainings in the Women Fisheries Network. Uh, some of them is a DRR, tra- uh, DRR training, it's mm-hmm. a disaster risk reduction, and, um, and um, gender social inclusion. Gender, gender equality and social inclusion and uh, some of the things about the ribs. Um, how does I apply to the women? After my training, when I go back uh, in my community, I have to call them and uh, tell them what I have learned, what they should do and what they have, don't have to do. Uh, like uh, for the... Um, future um, generation we have to um, what you call them the sustainable harvesting right Right. and uh, for the we have to preserve our resources Uh, due to the climate change we building the changes of um, weather patterns it uh, really affects our resources as well and uh, as of that we like we have to plans and uh, like it's a bit um, so one barrier there eh? one barrier to us uh, women in the community is uh, that the climate change so from it we have to face of it uh, some of the as women we have applied for the job for nature we are planting uh, mangroves mm. uh, and uh, some of the youths as well uh, for that, for the climate change, as the impact in our community, as a, we can see that the sea level rise up. Mm. From that, uh, barriers or challenges we face every day about climate change, I encourage the women and the men and the youths to we have to to struggle the issues. Eh? We have to tackle the issues mm. because the the climate change will. Mm. Yeah, we have right. to tackle it, so we have to plant more mangroves right. and some vativa mm. or some solution to the climate change right. like that. So you've talked about how the community have uh, seek the assistance uh, from the... Job for Nature, Job for Nature, Job for Nature Fiji, uh, and the Mangrove Planting mm-hmm. Initiative. So, when did uh, the community members took the this approach to oh. actually plant the mangroves? Yeah, yeah. It was just started uh, last year. Uh, it was uh, it uh, it's a three trench uh, job. 
like the first trench and the second trench, the third trench. Mm. It was applied for the mangroves um, planting yeah, due mm. for the climate change. Right. Some communities in Fiji, from my experience, mm. when they plant mangroves, they monitoring, eh? mm. they don't closely monitor. Mm. So sometimes after a few weeks or a few months, these mangroves, uh, the plant mm. will be washed away. Mm. So are there any plants uh, you and your other relatives in the village have put together to ensure that these mangroves are well preserved or well protected? Yes, uh, like in my village, we planted at... Uh, in our backyard or in our nursery, so the it will when the roots come out, so it will stay firm. Eh? When we plant it, it will stay firm. Yeah, mm. uh, that's the plants we we usually use. We have to plant it, then after three months or four months, and then we take it to the sea and plant it over there. Mm. It's really interesting to see the bold uh, steps eh? uh, yeah. these women, mm-hmm. women in Moimanda have mm-hmm. taken to deal with this uh, climate change issue. Uh, what's the response like from the elders in the village? Do they also show their support? Yeah, they also support us, like in the mangroves planting. Like all of the farms in Moimanda, we are planting mangroves. Yeah? Mm-hmm. We are planting groups and uh, it's a source of our income too into us, mm. into our family and the community and the church as well. As one church obligation, that's uh, mangroves money comes in. Yeah, the church obligation. So the elders too comes in, they took support to us. First of all, there's one, um, one um, barriers we have, it's uh, early morning tide. Eh? Mm. If it's five o'clock, uh, low tide, we have to wake up early at four or 3.30 just to prepare food for the children and uh, doing all the house chores before we we leave. After that we we have a boat ride for about half an hour boat rides for the um, Nama site and from there we dive. Mm. Uh-uh. We dive there for it takes three to four hours in the sea to collect the Namas to make uh, a 10 kg full bag mm. uh, and after that we come back home for 30 to 4 hours yeah uh, we come back no clean okay. we just come we we just pour it in one clean basin mm. and uh, cover it in one uh, clean cloth right. it's after that the early and uh, early morning or one o'clock bus then we pack it again in a sack and uh we write a name tag if it goes to the middleman or to the middle woman in Suba. We have to put the name tag on the um, on the mouthpiece of the bag, and it's delivered to Suba. It's uh, cost two dollars for it, and the barra boys will take it from the western bus stand to the owner, mm-hmm. whose name was written on it. But mm-hmm. myself. I was, uh, I, I called myself that I am luck. Therefore, I, so that's why I thank the Women in Fisheries Network that I'm a supplier. Uh, I'm a supplier. I'm a sole trader mm. uh, from my village through New World, New World the supermarket. supermarket at uh, Damwada City. Nice. Mm. Mm. So, from your experience over the past 10 or so years, mm-hmm. uh, do you see the decline, you know, the 
the number or the amount of uh, sea grapes that you harvest due to climate change? Uh, yes, yeah, sometimes it affects uh, and it's declined the, um, the, mean the, the, uh, Namai, the Namai, yeah. When, uh, you, you know, the Namai, it's, um, it, um, grows in, uh, pristine water, mm. and it's in the cold water. Mm. So, we, as my experience, due to the climate change, the humidity of the water, when it, uh, the temperatures, eh, when it's uh, getting hot, the numbers dies out. Mm. Yeah. And so then, uh, some of the experience. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it takes time to grow, right. to okay. grow back again. Right. Moving forward, what are some of the plans, uh, you and your other relatives or other women in the village have to ensure sustainable, uh, uh, management of, uh, sea grapes? Or we call it here in Fiji, Nama, in Namuimanda, the province of Ra. Uh, good. Uh, in uh, our future plans, like Nama is our major source of income in the village. Eh? So what I have to, I have uh, teach or told the woman that they have to be sustainable harvesters. Eh? So it can take uh, long. Eh? It can, um, it can, um, target the education's needs and the church needs and everything because it's our source of income. Eh? Mm-hmm. So the best thing is, and the best plan is that all the women, they, we have to do, to sustainable our harvesting number. And that was Sarah Mbalisasa, one of the women fishers in Namuimanda village, the province of Ra. I am Chosai Nanunga, reporting from Fiji. Thanks to Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Josai Nanunga for that story. What's your plan? Are you ready to leave your home? Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific Prepared. Sometimes we talk about passing on culture to different generations, almost like it's a physical thing that's just given to someone. And some parts of culture might be like that. But culture can also mean so many different things to so many different countries, and each has their own way of passing that down. In Papua New Guinea, there's one chief who's worried that culture isn't being passed down in the same way that it always has, and traditional knowledge might be getting lost. Papua New Guinea-based reporter and freelance journalist Ben Kadoga has this story. In many societies in Papua New Guinea, it's a sad fact, but it's, it's something that's happening. Uh, many societies have lost their, not all, but part of their uh, cultural uh, heritage, part of the cultural system that govern the way they operate. Yeah. And you come from a society that uh, that's so rich in in, in that yeah. in terms of having a social structure, structure yes. that's in place. Yeah. Yeah. As as a chief yourself, uh, you understand that very much. So mm-hmm. Can you? Uh, give me a bit of perspective as to how you see this uh, uh, this particular okay. structure coming to play and whether or not it's been threatened by well, different yeah. forces and things like that. Yeah. What's your uh, uh, take on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Well, this is how I actually see... It, it's a very scary process at this point in time. To, today's generation that you see uh, from the 
uh, how it's been put on uh, or passed down, uh, because I think that's the only mechanism that used to be is in place as far as our cultures and norms are concerned. Uh, passing down would be passed on by verbally uh, uh, generations to generations. We did not have a a proper uh, a written type of uh, agreement or you say, okay, this is one, two, three that I'm getting your policies and processes and the structure. It was never written. It was more or less put into a, an elephant's brain, just passed down by verbally, by a father to the son, uh, and then the son locks it up in the head, and then he passes it on to his his event. So that's how it came up to be. And in the process, while that was happening, uh, we had, like I said, other uh, other impacts that were coming in, like the modernization, uh, the the kind of approach, the attitude that these young people would have, uh, would especially sitting down with their forefathers and concentrating and capturing everything that's been handed down to them, the way it was handed down. Because uh, if it was written, like I said, it would be written there, so that the son, if he wasn't concentrating, he would still refer back and pick it up and read it. But the process was not there. The paper was pen and, and, and computers and whatnot were not there. So these men would just sit down and say, Listening, but in the process, there could be a bed that's crying there. It could be somebody who's coming in. Baby crying. Yeah, baby crying. So they get obstructed. But on a bit of bigger picture, this young person who was actually getting it from his father had his own way of looking at things from his, with those disturbances and all that, interruptions and all that. So the mode or the process of handing over the oasis was not done properly. So in my time, I'll call it the processes of handing over that information was not done properly. Like we didn't have any papers to be written on. So it depends on how the son picked it up. Then to hand it over to his son, which again, it's a, it's a big, big process, a bigger problem. There are certain unit cultures that we have in Papua New Guinea, and like I said, Aoku is renowned for some of the very colorful yeah. cultures in the uh, central province, uh, and you were just speaking about something earlier, yeah. you know, in terms of how the, uh, the chief, chief you know, was yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, that particular scenario that you, you, you it's not, it's no longer a history. Yeah. Can you just talk about the, uh, like yeah. that particular yeah, yeah, yeah. where the chief has a special town yeah. something? Yeah. Well, the chieftaincy structure itself, uh, we have, like in Karuku, we have uh, uh, the left wing and the right wing. Okay, so here when I'm, I, I'll be talking about the right wing, the structure, how it's the right wing is formed, and then you have the left. And uh, over a picture, the right wing is the, the paramount chief sensei. The left wing is supposed to be the security arm of the of the chief sensei. This is where we say the sorcerers, the bodyguards. More like the operations. Yeah, it's more, more like 
no security, we would say. Okay? Uh, and then you have the right, it's all security, the man who actually makes sure that the chief, the rules and all that is all being followed, handed down by the chief. The last two, make sure that he's listening, this person's carried it out. If he doesn't carry it out, then this man decides whether there's life or death to this, the subject or whoever it is. So that's the left thing is consist of more or less the security arm of the, of the structure of the chieftaincy. The right wing is, is the chief. And the right, now the right wing is broken into two parts. The higher level, which is the paramount or chief number one or best chief. And then he's, he's got his two IC. So in Garago, we call the top of the paramount chieftaincy is called Biarai. And then his two IC is called the Supuna. They're duty born in their, in their areas. The, super, the, the Supuna, uh, the Bihari chief, is a man who makes the final decision when it comes to decision making. When should the, uh, the, the, the uh, feasting should take place? Who is supposed to take leadership? What responsibilities to have and all that? He makes the final decision. But his decision is made on recommendation that comes from the, the elders. And the elders is actually headed by this operations man or this, this uh, uh, what, what do you call it, the Supuna, the number two. He is a man who works with ground level, the subjects and all the decisions that are going to be made. He collects all the information on how it's going to be done, and they make the recommendation to the, to the chief. And the chief will listen to all that, and he has all the recommendations, and then he makes the the final yes or no. So that's that's basically how the the two the, the, the structure itself, the chieftaincy structure actually works. In the process when you the duties, the duty board, the operations man or the Sukuna chief is also the man who's more or less all land rights, resources, subject, they was such a vested upon the Sukuna. He's in charge of Manpower, resources, not the West. The Bearage. The Bearage, like I said, is solely responsible for decision making. But his decision again is from the, the operations itself. The operations man is supposed to be the, the supernatural. So that's as far as the, briefly the, uh, the Russia's work. Thanks to Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist based in Papua New Guinea, Ben Kadoga. Disaster is part of our life, and recovering is also part of our life. As you see, they're smiling despite the devastation. That's how we are. You are listening to Pacific Prepared. We're going back to a story from late 2023 and a canoe in Samoa that's used to help teach young people about the environment and traditional knowledge. We're walking down a boat ramp in Samoa. It's slippery and I'm feeling a little bit uneasy on my feet and the water comes up over my waist. And then I sort of scramble up onto a small sailing boat, otherwise known as a laser. Hi, Glover. Yay. Coming in hot. And turning. Yep. (laughs) We're very elegant, Fred. 
I'm with my colleague Vi, who actually knows how to sail, and we sail out toward a much larger boat, just offshore. I'm no boat expert, as you can hear. I climb up the ladder, onto the boat, and the captain's there waiting. Uh, my name is Kalolo. Uh, Stephanie, or? Up ahead, we have our the main sail. Okay. Just uh, help us uh, pull us forward, push yeah. us forward. Okay. And, and uh, steer the forward part of the boat. Yeah, sure. We'll get back to the tour soon. The boat we're on sort of looks like a yacht. Well, it did to me anyway. But if you know boats, you'll probably know that this is actually a traditional Samoan canoe. It's light in colour, it's got two hulls that reach down into the water, and two masts with a heap of ropes coming down and attaching to the side of the canoe. The Samoa Voyaging Society use this canoe for more than just sailing across the ocean. It's also a way to teach young people about climate change and the environment. Uh, I'm Livia Black, President for Ainga Fulau, or Samoa Voyaging Society in Samoa. Olivia, where are we actually sitting at the moment? Okay. So right now we're on the Ngawalofa, which is the canoe, traditional uh, fa- design canoe for the uh, Samoa Voyaging Society. It's called the Guardians Program, and it's, it's about sharing uh, voyaging knowledge to ensure that voyaging knowledge is uh, kept uh, alive and also to ensure that we... Um, share um, the importance of uh, our youth, our students being involved in protection of the environment, climate change. They have so much that they can offer to um, help, uh, you know, keep our environment, the oceans, pure, clean, protected. The tour of the canoe continues with the captain. I think he's kind of enjoying showing someone like me who doesn't really know much about boats around this canoe. Usually where we're, where we're standing now, this is we are, if you can see it below, we have that um, carvings, which is uh, representing the, the compass. Yeah. And, um, and also it's the carvings, uh, all the, 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 the tattoo designs, the uh, tapa designs, but also it has an added value that you won't be able to slip when you are oh. steering the okay. boy. Uh. Yeah. Back to Olivia, who's sitting on the deck of the canoe. She's still wearing her bright red life vest. I, I, I would like them to, to know that they have a huge impact on, on uh, being uh, in command of the oceans and how the health of the oceans. I would like a lot more of our youths to be acquainted with voyaging voyaging knowledge and what what it's about it's about um, caring about the environment and conserving and ensure there is sustainability in the in the livelihoods that um, we 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 get from the ocean we receive we're gifted with um, for, for, for us with some more voyaging I hope that we can continue to uh, inspire young people to 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 know that um, they can uh, they are part of the solution they are part of the solution that story from late in 2023 while pacific prepared was being produced from samoa 
This show was made on the lands of the peoples of Stony Creek Nation in Luchawita, Tasmania. Pacific Prepared is supported with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, National Broadcasting Corporation of Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Fijian Broadcasting Corporation, Samoa National Radio 2AP, Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, and Tonga Broadcasting Commission. My name's Fred Hooper. Please share any information you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.